Hello and welcome to 2020 Politics War Room with James Carville. I'm Al Hunt here in Washington. James is back in the Shenandoah. We are proud partners with the Sign Institute at American University, and we can't wait to get back to the AU studio at some point. We have three great guests this week. We'll get to in a minute, but we kindly request you first, if you like the show, please subscribe to 2020 Politics War Room on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your podcast. James, our first guest, is a former acting dean of the Duke Law School, where he's taught for a quarter century, the former solicitor general of the United States, one of the great appellate lawyers to ever argue before the Supreme Court, and, listen to this now, a recipient of North Carolina's Order of the Longleaf Pine, whatever the hell that is, and a devoted fan of the last place UNC Tar Heel basketball team, the great Walter Dellinger, the legal guru for the Carville Hunt War Room podcast. Walter, what a finale these closing weeks for the Supreme Court. Is it right to say that more than any time, at least since Earl Warren, this really is the Chief Justice's court? Oh, yes, I think that's right. He clearly is the one person who has his hand on the rudder to try to steer the court um, uh, in a way that's not entirely um, uh, assist, uh, consistent with his own legal, ideological, political beliefs, uh, which I think, uh, uh, you know, are quite conservative. I do believe he's, uh, he is uh, sobered by the, by the fact that he's chief justice of a court that he would not want to see decide case after case after case on an exact 5-4 party line split uh, wrecking havoc. And I think um, his decision to join with uh, five others and to make the the case applying the anti-discrimination statute uh, to the LBGT community is a sign of that. That would not have been his his instinct. I mean, I think he's influenced. You know, he was a law clerk to Chief Justice Rehnquist, and I once interviewed Justice Rehnquist, and I asked him um, whether being Chief Justice had changed how he went about his work as a justice deciding cases. And after a pause, he said, it does because the court has to work as an institution. And I feel that responsibility at times. Uh, Walter, is, is part of it, it was, it was, Mr. Dooley said the court follows the election returns. Do they also anticipate them? Do they see the political environment now? I think in some sense that is, uh, uh, <laughs> that's, that's, that's true. I remember and. 1992, when the court recessed uh, in at the end of June, uh, uh, Bill Clinton was running third. Uh, uh, James Carver remember this, and uh, running third uh, behind uh, President Bush and Ross Perot. Uh, when the court reassembled in October, Bill Clinton was in ascendancy and rolling towards victory. And Justice Blackman told me that. There was such a difference when the court broke up. Uh, Justice Scalia and the others knew that reinforcements were coming. Uh, 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 as, as more Republicans were set to join the court, and they were taking no prisoners, they were not compromising on anything. And when the court uh, returned in October, the atmosphere was quite different as they realized that Bill Clinton was going to be naming the next group of Supreme Court justices. Yeah. Just one more, Walter. Uh, have we learned? We've now gone through. A couple terms with Gorsuch and Kavanaugh. There were a few exceptions. 
but they still look pretty much like a right wing uh, conservative Republican, don't they? I think that's right. I mean, Gorsuch does show signs of being quite seriously devoted to methodology. I mean, sometimes his gut level instincts about what's right and wrong, uh, uh, you know, in a large policy sense might override his methodology. But in the in the case involving sex discrimination, he seemed quite wedded to his methodology of looking at the text and saying that these people are being discriminated against, quote, because of sex. And that for him was determinative. Now, I think there are things that they care about. Um, uh, both Gorsuch and Kavanaugh are going to care about uh, reducing the size of the of, of the government. Uh, they're going to uh, want to keep the resources in the hands of the rich. They are not troubled by the influence of wealth on the political process. They, uh, indeed, I think they will welcome it. Uh, uh, they would uh, would have joined, I think, in, in Shelby County, which gutted parts of the Voting Rights Act. They're, they will be very skeptical of any legislation that has any redistributive effect, which could be a real problem if we ever have a progressive government. And uh, But this, you know what they don't care about? They don't care about Donald J. Trump. They're going to be on the court for decades. They're going to be on the court for decades after he is no longer around. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Uh, Mr. Carvel of the LSU Law School will now inquire of Mr. Dellinger of Yale and Duke. <laughs> So, Walter, it looks like where Roberts and Gorsuch get a little bit away from orthodoxy. It's like DACA and uh, also the the gay rights legislation. Is there any distance between Roberts, Gorsuch, Kavanaugh, Alito, Thomas on what I would call corporate issues, business, you know, that kind of stuff? So, yeah, that's not. That's the the really important thing here. I I think they are setting up to give you, oh look, we're we're just being impartial here. And I don't think this court in this century has ever ruled against big business. Not since the Rehnquist court, uh, you know, so thoroughly replaced the Warren court. There was a an, an interregnum of the of the Burger court, right. but I think since then there's been a solid conservative pro business majority. What Concerns me about the future if President Trump gains control of the court through another nomination uh, uh, in this term or nominations in the second term, which are sure to come. I really worry that if we ever have a progressive government, President, House, Senate, that they would be prepared to invalidate legislation that had a redistributive effect. The objection of, 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 of uh, at least four of the justices to the Affordable Care Act came out in oral argument where uh, I believe Justice Alito said, isn't this really about transferring wealth from younger and healthier uh, people to older and sicker people? Isn't it just a wealth transfer? To which Don Verrilli, the solicitor general, brilliantly answered very succinctly, the Social Security Act of 1935 was upheld by a unanimous court, period. That's all we needed to say, which did exactly that, of course. The language of the 16th Amendment is pretty clear. I don't, how could they invalidate, you know, highly progressive income taxation? I think they could not. I think what they would, uh, uh, that, that, those, are, those are hard politically to pass, James. It's easier to get through, you know, a requirement that people have uh, minimum health care and, and to put the burden on insurance companies, you know, et cetera. And, and the, court, the court smells redistribution. 
when it looks at the Affordable Care Act. And in fact, it was, if you ask what Obama did for, for poverty uh, and wealth redistribution, the Affordable Care Act played uh, a pretty major role in, in, in making us a more equitable society. Not that it got us anywhere near where we need to be, but it, it certainly put us in the right direction. Uh, but they can't get around the 16th Amendment. In terms of the taxation, no, I think that's right. Uh, I think it's going to be a different and, 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 and difficult fight over whether Congress could tax wealth which is a much more sensible way. You, you, know, like you might write a great book, James, and have a big year, but income that year doesn't, doesn't really relate to your ability to contribute to the government as much as what your net worth is. So uh, uh, even a 1% tax on income over $20 million, $20 million a year uh, raises a hell of a lot of money. Right. And that's, you can do that easily. Right. I mean, right. That's constitutionally permissible. Well, there's a debate over that because the 16th Amendment only applies to income tax, and the question is whether a tax on wealth, you know, is 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 such a uh, is the same thing as an income tax. Right. But if I make 20 million dollars in a year, as opposed to having a 20 million dollar net worth, they might say yeah, no. But what that. you really want—that's right. What you really want to do is to tax a little Lord Fauntleroy who's sitting on 40 million dollars. Uh, uh, you want to take the half that's over twenty million and subject it to one percent a year, and that's that's quite a progressive machine. I've defended the constitutionality of that as a proposal uh, that's never yet been put forward by a, um, uh, a presidential uh, candidate, except it did come up during the Democratic primaries. All right. So, so did you? This were uh, listeners. We do this podcast at eleven Eastern on Wednesday. But did you have a chance this morning to see the appellate court ruling that said that they had to stop the Flynn prosecution? No. No. I yeah, was, I was, was, re I was reading the testimony. Now, it was a two-to-one decision by that three-judge right. panel with the two Republicans. It was two-to-one. Okay. I think. Right. Yeah, that would have shocked me if it were... Uh, 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 holy moly! Can he take? Mo can they man. take it to the full uh, Court of Appeals, Walter? Yes, they will. They'll take it to the full DC Circuit, and uh, 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 and this will be reversed. Uh, this will be reversed by the full circuit. I can guarantee it. You can have me back on. You can chastise me from being a fool. This two to one decision will not stand. Um, the uh, Judge Naomi Rao has been a consistent. Um, a, uh, a, a consistent supporter of um, uh, of Trump, and she's joined in the opinion by Judge Karen Henderson, who is one of the more more conservative of the George H. Uh, w. Bush nominees who are still uh, who are still on the court. Uh, Robert Wilkins, in dissent, says the majority grievously overstepped its its own authority by forcing Sullivan to drop the case. It makes no sense whatsoever. I constantly predict that the that the full circuit will uh, uh, will reverse this uh, two to one decision. Um, this is an utterly un <laughs> every norm around us is breaking down. Um, they could have reviewed this matter after Judge Sullivan had ruled, of course. Um, but in this way, they're throwing a monkey wrench in the plan to have a July sixteenth hearing uh, before Judge Sullivan on the government's request to dismiss the Flynn case. Um, well, well, Walter, this this gets to 
your uh, your least favorite and our least favorite attorney general. You know, the, the, the notion Bill Barr was a conservative, even a right wing uh, attorney general who yeah had some politics uh, in his in his veins. Walter, he is a right wing attorney general who's willing to bend justice in any way he can to suit the political needs of Donald J. Trump and William Barr. I, I, I think this is worse than John Mitchell. You know, I I was asking whether he was the worst attorney general and, and thinking about Mitchell. I think he's been more effectively worse than John Mitchell. Uh, John Mitchell must be thinking from wherever he's looking up or down that, damn, I wish I had thought of doing that. Uh, <laughs> when he looks at Barr, I tell you, like, here, here, here's the fundamental mistake I made about Bill Barr. Uh, I thought it was a good choice uh, for a Trump uh, attorney general, given, given that, uh, because I thought that Barr had uh, had the cojones to stand up to Donald Trump when Trump tried to push the department around. And I was right about the fact that Barr has the capacity to stand up uh, to Trump. What I didn't understand was how much he not only agrees with Trump, He's driving this agenda. The idea that 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 that, um, that Barr is uh, some kind of, of, of puppet of Trump's uh, completely misses the fact that it's the Attorney General himself who is driving this uh, uh, dismantling of the system of, of of justice, and I find that just shocking. I don't know what has happened to Bill Barr in the time since he was. Uh, uh, attorney general the first time to bring this about. I mean, it's, um, I was just reading the testimony, the Wednesday morning uh, prepared statement of Assistant U.S. Attorney uh, Aaron Zelensky uh, about the, the intervention and in the um, sentencing of Roger Stone. Uh, it's just shocking. I, I, we have never seen this kind of politicization of the, uh, of the Department of Justice. Now, there's one sense in which politicization, to use that term, there's nothing wrong with a president and an attorney general setting the policy agenda of the department to say, we're going to have more rigorous enforcement of the antitrust laws, or that we're going to make priority reviewing violations of civil rights by law enforcement, by state and local law enforcement officers. It's very different to say, we're going to go after this particular police officer because he's the nephew of a political opponent of the president. Or we're not going to go against this other police officer because his family has been a political supporter of the president. That is a very different matter. And that is a line that the Department of Justice, in my view, uh, simply hasn't crossed. Uh, uh, Zelensky, who's a career prosecutor, said he had never seen interference in the role of prosecutorial decision-making for political reasons, with the one exception of the United States versus Roger Stone. Well, I, I think the one good thing, Walter, that may come out of this is that when he's appointed these two U.S. attorneys, one of whom was a former Trump counsel in the White House, to look into what happened to try to really absolve uh, Trump and people of any um, Russian interference and go after the people uh, who were investigating. I don't think, I, I'm sure what they're going to come up with now, I don't think it's going to have any credibility now, given Bill Barr's uh, a total, total lack of credibility. I, I think that's, uh, I think that's absolutely correct. I mean, it's, it, it, history is going to judge 
bar harshly. He's going to judge every enabler. He's going to judge every member of the United States Senate, especially those, every Republican member of the United States Senate, especially those who serve on the Committee of Jurisdiction, the Judiciary Committee, are going to be harshly judged if they stood by and let this happen. It's an open book. Anyone who can sit down and read the, what, 500 pages of the Mueller report and then sit down and read how Bill Barr wouldn't release the report, but released his own summary, which is not just disingenuous, but mendacious in its misleading characterization of the, of the report. And then this stunt that, that the attorney general pulled by giving his, the morning that the Mueller report was released, by giving his own press conference summary of the report for three hours before the report was released in order to, uh, to dominate the story. And it won. They, they, they talk about collusion with the Russian. Now, Russia is now being a hoax when, they, when the report only says that they're not going to indict senior members of the campaign because of lack of proof beyond a reasonable doubt that there was an actual agreement, an actual agreement between campaign officials and the indicted 17 Russian military officials, when in fact the, um, uh, the, the, the cooperation is all over the Mueller report, 200 instances of connections between it. And then you come to the, uh, I mean, that is enough to disqualify Barr from the Attorney General. When you come to the, uh, the, the Roger Stone matter and read in detail the seriousness of his crimes, this is someone who is perverting the democratic processes of electing a president of the United States and Roger Stone, and who not only just lied repeatedly and flagrantly under oath before Congress, he says there were no written communications when there were hundreds of emails between him and campaign officials. When uh, uh, he lies about the most serious matters, he, he lies about who was involved so that they they, uh, that 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 um, interferes with the investigation. He lies. Um, he not only lies; he actually engages in in witness in intimidation. This is mafia level organized crime efforts by Roger Stone, and uh, the the way in which the department took the sentencing memorandum submitted by the career prosecutors and replaced it the same day with a new memorandum, which as the sworn testimony Wednesday morning, the sworn testimony of uh, career uh, prosecutor Zelensky says actually distorted the record of the trial when they when they submitted it. But then we got the whole antitrust area. All right, well, first of all, I would like to point out to Mr. Hunt and Mr. Dellinger that the James Carville Endowed Chan Constitutional Law at Louisiana State University Law School is an African-American Yale Law graduate. There are good law schools around this country, but- And LSU, I, and LSU is one of them. I, 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 if, let's say that they, Congress passed, President signs 13 members of the Supreme Court. Is that constitutional? Absolutely beyond peradventure of doubt. That it just, and they could add another 100 appellate court judges if they wanted to. They could. They often do a judge's bill when you have uh, uh, when it's time to do so, uh, and you, know, you would only do that. It would it would be a blow at the, to the legitimacy of the court 
But the question would be at the time you considered it whether there was any legitimacy left to the court. Uh, right. Uh, uh, and it, it, it could well be the only choice that, uh, that was available if the court took a, a, a turn toward illegitimacy and not just a turn towards uh, conservatism in its rulings. Right. But that, that, that's, that's not written, that's not in the Constitution or anything. No, the Supreme Court has been uh, the number of the Constitution, number of justices starting the Constitution, and it has been six, it has been ten, it has been nine uh, at different points. And if you want to talk about court packing, Mitch McConnell essentially engaged in functional court packing. When Justice Scalia died, he he reduced the he functionally reduced the size of the court to eight as long as there was a Democratic president. And only when there was a president of his party did he increase the size of the court back to nine. Not literally, but functionally is exactly what uh, what happened. That's a great point. I never thought of that. That's original with me. Well, you guys. Walter, you're always, <laughs> you're always original. You're always interesting. Uh, you are, as I say, our lawyer. I have just one final question. What in the hell is the order of the longleaf pines? <laughs> you, you could have picked out a number of other accolades I've got. The order of longleaf pines is actually given by the governor of North Carolina, which is a state where the longleaf pine, I believe, to be the state um, <laughs> leaf or whatever it is, the state tree is. The state tree is given to those for notable contributions to the. Tar Heel State. It is an honor I wear proudly. That and being in the Myers Park High School Hall of Fame. Wow. Well, if we can put, we can put you on the on honor of Sunday Zoom call society. <laughs> <laughs> a legal guru. Right. Yeah. Okay. Special legal house. Always great to talk to you guys. James, will the South rise again for the Democrats? Two expert guests, Paul Begala, who was, of course, the brains of the Carville Begala directed Clinton campaign in 1992, one of the most genuine and insightful Democratic thinkers, a native of Fort Bend County, Texas, once represented by Tom the Hammer DeLay, and I think he's going to tell us how the times they are a-changing, and Keith Mason, a prominent Georgia lawyer, top aide, uh, to Zell Miller, former governor, advisor to Bill Clinton and Sam Nunn, among others, and a proud native of Gwinnett County. Keith, let's start with you. Gwinnett County, I think, is the second biggest in Georgia. Uh, it was once overwhelmingly white. Uh, it was Newt Gingrich uh, country. Tell us what's changed. Well, there's been a lot of growth in Gwinnett County since that time, and a lot of people from diverse uh, backgrounds have moved in. In fact, 25% uh, of our population were not born in the United States. Uh, so it is a, a county, in my opinion, that looks a lot like the future of America, and uh, it has a, a, a broad demographic uh, scope. It's a county that's likely to go for Joe Biden uh, this November? I think it definitely goes for Joe Biden. Just a question is how much. Um, Stacey Abrams got 57% of the vote uh, in, in 2018. Hillary Clinton got um, 51 in 2016. That's the first uh, presidential candidate that has carried the county since Jimmy Carter in 1976. That's amazing. Just for historical purposes, what was... What was George Bush uh, uh, getting back in uh, uh, 2004, for instance? Yeah, just roughly. 
Uh, George Bush uh, in 2004 got 59%. John Kerry got 41 No, 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 that's statewide. No, George Bush got 67% in 2004 in Burnett. Wow, 67 to Stacey Abrams, 57. Do you think overall, uh, do you think that Biden will carry Georgia? I think he has a really good shot given the growth of our state and the diversity of our state. The big question is whether they, the, our people get the chance to vote. So Keith, it, it's James. Yes, sir. If, if, if you just on election night, if you just kept your eye on Gwinnett, if, if Biden gets 60% in Gwinnett, he's going to carry Georgia, yeah. right? Yes. Yes. That means if you just look at one thing the whole night. Right. 60% is the watershed number. He gets that in Gwinnett, he carries, what, 16 electoral votes. Exactly. Now, there'll be a 10-point gap between uh, the Democratic vote in Georgia and what, the, what they'll get statewide. So there'll be a bump. Okay. So wh- while I got you on the phone, and we're going to go to Paul, in, in the Senate race, in both of them, you have to get to, well, in, in, the, in the, well, you have the Democratic and the Republican primary, and in, in, uh, I guess that's the, is that the Purdue seat? Purdue the, seat, well, yeah. The Purdue seat. And there's a libertarian, Alan Buckley, who went to law school with me, by the way. If you don't get 50, you got to, you have to have a runoff, correct? Correct, correct. Which is almost likely that neither one get to 50. Uh, it's possible, but it's also possible if there's a, you know, a, a big wave that Ossoff wins it outright. Just to clarify, Jim, just to interrupt for a second, isn't the other seat, Keith, in essence, a primary? The other seat is what, you know, is like they do in James's uh, native state, Louisiana. It's what they call the jungle primary. And so it's multi-candidate. And, uh, the last time we had an election like that was in the year 2000 when Zell Miller was uh, appointed by Governor Roy Barnes to uh, the Paul Coverdell unexpired term. And Miller, oh, his primary primary opponent was former Senator Mac Mattingly. And he there were some other candidates, but he, he won pretty clearly, but not by a lot, like 53, 4. Uh, but he did carry Gwinnett County that year. So there's some chance we could have two Georgia Senate seats decided in January of 2021. Yes, yes. The, yes, the open seat, the Johnny Isaacson seat, the one that Lock, Kelly Loeffler holds, is the, the one that's most likely to be to, to go to a runoff. Right. But but it's possible we could have two. But wouldn't that be something? Right, right. And the other thing is January 5th, I think, is the date. Something like that. Well, all right. Let's go to the eyes of Texas. Uh, Paul, Paul Begala, uh, uh, tell us about about your native uh, home, County Fort Bend, Texas, uh, once I think represented by Tom the Hammer DeLay. Uh, like Gwinnett, it's quite different today, right? It, it, it is. I, I'm old enough to remember when Tom DeLay was our pest control guy, and he got into politics because the, <laughs> the evil EPA outlawed DDT, and that Pissed him off so much, he got into He was my state representative, then he was my congressman. When I was a kid, there were about 50,000 people in, in Fort Bend County, in the whole county. Today, there's over 800,000. So when I was a kid, even, even in a Democratic Texas, Fort Bend County went for Nixon in 68, even though Texas went for, for Humphrey. It went for Ford in 76, even though Texas went for Carter. So it was a very conservative, very Republican county, 
the kind of place that produces Tom DeLay. But when you move from 50,000 people 50 years ago to over 800,000 today, and it has surged to the wealthiest county in Texas, median family income, $106,000, things change. And today there is no racial majority. Uh, it's less than 50% white in the 40s. Lots of African-Americans, which there were when I was a kid, and lots of Latinos. But now a, a swarm, a wonderful uh, 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 addition of first Americans and new Americans, rather, from Vietnam, from China, from the Philippines, from India, from Pakistan, from Nigeria. It is, it is among the most diverse counties in America, if not the most. And that makes a whole new politics there. Well, just pack that in for a second, because it goes so against the conventional thinking. This is the richest, wealthiest county in Texas, and it's 60% uh, minority. That's not generally what we think of when we think of uh, uh, predominantly minority uh, counties. That really makes it rather unique. It, it, it does, because people have come. We, well, I went back. Of course, I live up in, in the D.C. area now, but in, in uh, the fall of 2016, September 2016, I went back uh, down to Houston. I go there a lot. I have a lot of family. And my brother said, it was a Friday night, and he said, hey, it's homecoming at our old high school. So we went. We hadn't been to our home county football game in decades. And we walked in that same stadium that we used to, to just play in, and it was packed for the homecoming game. And it looked like a Benetton ad. It looked like the United Nations. There were uh, uh, Arab... American girls wearing hijabs in the school colors. It was the most amazing display of the richness and diversity of America you've ever seen. So, and we sat with the parents, of course, and started asking them. Every parent we sat with was an immigrant. Every one of those parents had moved to Fort Bend County, Texas from somewhere in the world. And we asked them why. And they said, because we want to live the American dream. These are highly educated people, a lot in tech and a lot in medicine. You know, Houston is famous for being an oil city. It's really a medical powerhouse. And it has completely transformed this place. And I think for the good. Well, I'm going to introduce you to James Carville in a minute. <laughs> but just finally, uh, and what does that say about the politics? And uh, I assume it must be a predominantly Democratic county now. And does that lead the way? We talked about Gwinnett County, 10 points. Uh, Biden wins the state. Uh, how about Fort Bend as a barometer for whether Biden can win Texas? Yeah. Fort Bend is probably still a little more Republican than Gwinnett. I'd defer to Keith on that. But but Hillary won narrowly, 51-52. Beto O'Rourke in 2018, without a surge that the presidential uh, candidate usually brings in turnout, he won there as well. So I, I would look for it to be a bit of a bellwether if the margin moves up, and I think it will. I think Biden is showing enormous strength among uh, college-educated whites and among immigrants, which is, and, and African-Americans and Latinos, that's my county. Uh, so I do think there's a real chance that the race to watch there in addition to Biden is the congressional race. Tom DeLay was my congressman for a generation. And now uh, the, the Pete Olson is retiring. The seat is open. And the, the Democrat running is a guy named Sri Preston Kulkarni. Sri's father moved to Fort Bend County from India. Sri was born in the district. He's first generation American on his dad's side. He ran the last time and Pete Olson accused him of being, quote, an Indo-American carpetbagger, to which Sri had two answers. First, I was born in this district and you weren't, sir. And second, I'm proud that my father came to America seeking the American dream in Fort Bend County. My mother's family came to Texas too, but a little earlier. Her great-great-grandfather was a man named Sam Houston. You may have heard of him. 
he was an immigrant <laughs> to Texas too. I mean, Sri is just, he speaks eight languages for real. Did he have a shot? A direct descendant of Sam Houston and the son of an Indian immigrant. That might be the best comeback I've ever heard. So I want to talk to you just a second about presidential politics is a subject you know something about. And there was a, as you know, I followed John Tate. And he had a piece this morning that said, actually, Joe Biden is running a good campaign. And it's all the headlines of how mediocre it is. And I actually agree with that. And people, I, I think they plan this thing pretty smart right now. Well, I agree. I think he's the nominee because he understood his party better than the rest of the candidates. Uh, and I, I talked to many of the candidates and I would always say to them, when you think of your party, you're thinking of the base of your party. You're thinking of uh, a, an assistant professor of aromatherapy candle making at Iowa State. And, you know, we love him, but that's not the base. Of your, the base of your party is a church lady in Orangeburg, South Carolina. That's what Joe Biden understood. He understood the heart of his party is people of color and he had earned their support. And that's why he's a nominee. I think the same way he understands our country. And the, the, I think he has been dialed in exactly where the country wants, which is uh, unity, reconciliation, healing, integrity, but also not extremism. I thought he was very deft when he put aside this notion of defunding the police and instead redefined uh, what what we need to do in terms of having more uh, folks who are, are maybe better trained in uh, mental health care and other things that, that uh, the cops are mishandling now. I thought that was very deft. Yeah, I, I started, you know, look, in the primaries, he actually didn't have a campaign. He had an idea, and his idea was right. All right, right. and Cliven dropped a hammer. I was skeptical of what, you know, that I, just, I knew people weren't going to vote for Trump. I've always known Biden was going to win. He has surprised me, and Keith, I want you, if you could weigh in on this too, because you watch it closely. He's actually surprised me by running a deft campaign. I, I'm not one of, you know, everybody, oh God, Joe Biden's going to do something wrong. God, Biden didn't do it. Actually, as of now, the evidence is, is out there that he's running an actually a, a really good campaign. Yeah, he's, he's playing it very smart. I mean, he, he's respecting the uh, seriousness of this pandemic in terms of his personal behavior, and he's letting Trump be Trump. And right now, people are sick of Trump. So, Albert, what, what, what what's your reaction to that? To, to that? Well, I, I I think he's been I think he's being helped enormously by two factors. Number one, Trump. Uh, I, I mean, and I think and and number two, I actually think the pandemic has probably helped him on two grounds. Number one, uh, he's serious about it, whereas his opponent is not. Uh, and uh, secondly, uh, I think campaigning from Wilmington, Delaware, has served him well. Uh, he. We all know Joe sometimes can be Joe. And uh, but no, I think, you know, look, he, I, I can't see any way that this uh, slips from his grasp. I want to ask Paul, I, I want to ask Paul, what are the odds of Biden carrying Texas? It's still less than 50 percent. I, I would if I were advising him. Well, actually, let me stop. If I were advising Mike Bloomberg and I, I know he listens to this podcast, Mr. Bloomberg, mayor, put 100 million dollars in Texas. You got 67 billion. You spent like 500 million on, on your presidential campaign. Put 100 million in Texas, and you will accelerate its movement to a democratic state, which will revolutionize politics in America. Um, it, it, it is an expensive place. That's the problem. And and the Democrats, uh, we're more compact, and so you have to advertise in Houston, Dallas, San Antonio, Austin, the four big cities, and that's gruesomely expensive. Um, 
but the, the Democrats are pushing very hard. They're only nine seats flipping from taking over the state house of representatives. And every one of those, and Paul, I'm told that, that there are nine seats that are Republican held now in that state house that either Beto or Hillary carried. Or both, yes. Either either one or both, yes. Which, so they, which gives them a real shot. It does. And this is a sea change. It's, it's hard to really imagine. Um, my son, Billy, is 24, and he's now working uh, in, in Texas in Democratic politics. Since the day he was born in Texas, no Democrat has won a statewide election. There have been over 180 statewide elections in the last 24 years. Not a single Democrat has won one, not for a statewide judgeship, not for the state land commissioner, nothing. That is a bit of a trend. But I do think there that we're, we saw Beto crack it, and I do think that there's a chance that this thing tips in this election cycle because of the combination of uh, uh, patterns of immigration and college-educated white people in the suburbs just getting sick of Trump, just the way Keith was talking about. So I want to get to three of y'all. All of us are always we all talk, and I talk to y'all all the time, and none of you particularly agree with me, but I've had this theory that there's more than just an infinitesimal chance that Trump chooses not to run. He had a horrible night last, last night. And at North Carolina 14th and Kentucky 4th, which is Eastern Kentucky, of which, Keith, you know something about Kentucky, as I do. That's a hardcore Trump area. His endorsed candidate lost that primary. So then this morning, I'm looking at, this in Politico, there's a, Duval County did a poll, and it showed that 57% of people didn't want the convention there. It, the, the Republicans wanted it, the Democrats didn't, the independents didn't. In Jacksonville. Yeah. 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 Jacksonville. Jacksonville. But the interesting thing in that poll was in, in Duval, which is the, the bell of all Florida. All right. Trump carried it by 1.3 in 16, which is probably pretty close to his margin. The, the Santa's favorable was 49. Unfavorable was 49. The Trump unfavorable was 61. Now, I don't know how good the poll is, but you got voters really making a distinction. And I'm sure these are Republican voters making that distinction. I, I mean, the, the crowd of 6,200 people in Tulsa, I said, well, maybe that didn't mean anything to the pandemic or people didn't want to go. I think, I think his base is starting to loosen and loosen fast. And I present those three events as evidence of that. Do y'all find that persuasive? No. I think there is a weakening of him down there. I'm, I spend time down there, and uh, people are worried about that convention coming. And it's also seeping in up the Georgia coast, which is only, you know, 90 miles from from uh, Jacksonville anyway. And there'll be there, people are worried, and that area is uh, getting more outbreaks. Paul, you think there's, 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 there's any real chance he won't run? Zero. Less than zero. If there's a number below zero, I was a liberal arts major, so I don't know. But I, I just, I mean, James, I love you. The smartest guy I know. There's not a chance. What narcissist has ever said this? Turn off the camera. He can't. He can't not run. What's he going to do? Spend more time with his family? Okay. It's a very I, practical legal evident. reason. Let, let's ask Walter Bellinger. It is Bellinger. getting increasingly. But he's got, he's got a wolf by the ears. 
Well, he gets past the pardon. So he has to resign now, not just not run. That's he's going to resign. Constitutionally, not sure. He's going to dump Mike Pence. Yes, it's going to be he's opposite. Gonna he's going to dump Pence. He's going to put Nikki Haley on the ticket. Okay, I've, he is going to lose so bad, so bad. He's going to right now. The, the real clear politics average is he's at forty one point one. The the five thirty eight is forty point nine. His approval is forty one. Right? The wrong track is six, 70. He is going to lose by double digits and more than low double digits. And it's becoming apparent. And his base is weakening. And he, the one thing he can't take with his brand is a humiliating defeat of which he is certain to get. And he will figure that out. And he'll say, look, I accomplished more in three years and nine months than Franklin Roosevelt did in 12 years of a Lincoln of George Washington, where I don't give a shit anything. And, and I've, I've changed the regulatory system, the tax code, immigration laws. I've, I've changed the federal judiciary and the deep state and the fake media. I'm going out and starting a television network and I'm coming back and I'm running in 2024 because the country is going to find out it can't do it. Out. Well, I, 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 Paul, I think it's, it's, it's greater than zero, uh, but I, I'm closer to you than I am to James on this for for uh, uh, two simple for one simple reason. And our guest a couple of weeks ago was Tim O'Brien, who said you can never possibly overestimate how self-delusional Trump is. I'm not sure he will ever uh, accept those realities. I think he will probably fire his campaign manager uh, in the next couple of weeks. I think he may well, as you say, dump Pence for Nikki Haley. But it always will be someone else's fault, never his. And um, I, I, I think that'll last right up on November 3, and then he'll do the same song that James just sang. I, 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 all right. I, look, he did not look like a, a man that was delusional when he walked off of Marine One. He looked like a man that just got his ass beat. That's true. But he, he, he can't quit. Okay. All right. Look, I've I, I made a provocative prediction. You, you disagree with it? I don't think he quits. But I will say this about James Carville and his uh, intuition. I was with him at the 2008 Democratic Convention, and he said that week that the McCain team was going to throw a Hail Mary. They're going to do something creative that's out of the, that we, we don't know what it's going to be, but it's going to be it's going to be wild. And they and he picked Sarah Palin. I don't think James knew he's going to pick Sarah Palin, but his hunch was, was right. <laughs> no, I didn't. Never. <laughs> so, Keith, do me a favor. Give us a James Carville imitation. <laughs> well, I tell you, I got, I got to get down there. I, Paul, 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 we, we got to do a memo. Yeah, I, I want to, I, I want to, I want to get something out today. <laughs> but let me tell you something. Do, never write a letter and never throw one away. That's what one thing I always live by. You can't get in trouble for something. <laughs> That's pretty darn good. I've got a rival uh, here uh, who was a researcher for James's book. Once, All right. My son, Benjamin. Benjamin, what would James say to you? Hey. Well, uh, you got to tell me what to say here. You got you to gotta tell me what to say. I don't know what the hell to say. God damn it. <laughs> that is spot on, Benjamin. I'm telling you, Benjamin's got a future. <laughs> hey, you know, we can do a regular segment every week on this podcast. You know, the James Carville limitation. Yeah, if I if I'm 
if I'm sick one time, I'll just let him be me. No, no difference. You probably said, man, that guy got smart all of a sudden. Benjamin's a lot smarter than me. Call, call into James's bank, Benjamin, and say, hey, this is James Carver. I got, I, I need you to transfer $100,000 to Benjamin Hunt at this account number. <laughs> What a funny this. Uh, 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 well, Fargo, okay, you know, listen, I got to transfer $100,000. If you could just, you know, get that done. That's all in the five. Oh, my gosh. All right, guys. Good, what man. a way to wrap this up. Keith Thank and Paul. Oh, what a show. You guys are just fabulous guests. And I want all of our audience on November the 3rd, look at Gwinnett, look at Fort Bend. Uh, because they are going to be leading indicators for two really uh, important states. So thank you, guys. I have one question, Paul. In your gut, if we get fifty-six in Fort Bend, do we win Texas? I think you got to get like sixty. I would make that the Mendoza line in the same way it is with Gwinnett. I, you got to roll it up in the suburbs. Uh, just watch those two counties. Deal with everything else. Not exit polls. Not nothing. Watch Gwinnett and Fort Bend. You got the tip right here. Politics 2024. You heard it here. You're right, James. Gwinnett and Fort Bend. Listen, guys, you were just great. Walter was great. Thank you so much. Thanks a million, guys. It was fun. Thank you so much. Thanks, Al. Thanks, James. Thanks, Keith. You're a genius. (laughs) And and Benjamin, you're about to be a millionaire. Benjamin's the smartest man in the room. He's going from 100,000 to a million. (laughs) All right. And I want to thank everybody for listening to 2020 Politics War Room. Follow the show on Twitter at Politics War Room. You can also email politicswarroom at gmail.com. That's politicswarroom at gmail.com. And if you have a comment or question for us, let us know what you think of the show. Thank you for subscribing. Uh, Tell uh, the mailman about it. Tell your cousins. Tell your grandchildren. Tell everyone you see as long as you're social distancing. James, uh, this was really quite a show. Gosh, it was fun. Oh, it's better than us. All time. It, it really was. All time.